0: Thank you, Rebecca, and I trust that you still have your copy of God's Word open, and I want to draw your attention to verse 41. That's the real heart of the text here. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The word of God is replete with admonitions, exhortations like this, exhortations to be on guard against what we're going to see here is spiritual pride, spiritual pride. What do we mean by spiritual pride? Well, spiritual pride is uh, the belief that the strength, wisdom, and knowledge for living the Christian life, for walking with God resides ultimately in us. Now most of us would not say it like that. We, we know we're not supposed to say that. In fact, I don't think the disciples here would have said that, but yet oftentimes our actions belie our intent, right? They undermine it. They show that actually we are operating on a different set of principles. It's not so much what we say is always what we believe, it's what we do that really shows what we believe. And this sin of spiritual pride, it was, it was a sin that plagued uh, the, the churches in the early church. We think of the church in Corinth, where the Apostle Paul specifically goes after their own pride. They they had an inflated view of their own selves or an inflated view of their spiritual maturity. And, and so Paul writes to them he says, What do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, then why do you act as if you haven't? In other words, what is it in your life that you haven't been given by God? You can take an inventory and you will come up with nothing, right? Nothing. You have not been given anything except that which was given to you by God. So that should impact how you think. And yet spiritual pride falls into this deception, right? This view that actually I have accomplished all these things, that I am something special, that I am, um, I am the producer of all my gifts, all my resources, all my knowledge and my abilities are all inherent in me, and we carry ourselves that way at times. And what we're going to see in this text this morning, illustrated in this narrative, this intimate time with Jesus, is we get a, a window, one of the most private, most intimate Uh, near uh, moments in the scriptures, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, where we get to see into the heart of Jesus, the man. Oftentimes we think of Jesus as the divine son, and rightly so, but here we're going to see him as the man. And we're going to see him dependent upon the Father in contrast with the disciples who are self-deceived. They think they're spiritually strong. They can withstand whatever is about to happen. They're deceived into spiritual pride. And as we're going to see, is when we too we can find ourselves in the disciples this morning, when we fall into spiritual pride, when we're sucked in, it's so subtle. We are setting ourselves up for a great fall. We're setting ourselves up to fall into temptation. That's why he exhorts us, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That is, that you don't succumb to it, because it's coming. And almost like the coming of the Son of Man, it will come at an hour you least expect. So watch and pray, because if we rely on ourselves, we will fall. But if we rely on Christ, we'll be strengthened this passage, we see a spiritual pride that I think all too often, as we will see, characterizes us, right? And this spiritual pride, how does it manifest itself here? Prayerlessness, right? Prayerlessness. We even hear an echo of the Lord's Prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation, right? Jesus has taught them how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Now he models how to pray here in Matthew 26. He models, he shows us that the principles of the Lord's prayer are all found here in this text. And we pray, and we must pray lest we enter into temptation. Now, prayerlessness, I think for most of us, especially if we walk with Christ, we know Christ, we love Christ, it doesn't come as a result of impure motives. I don't want to pray. No, most of us don't say that. Actually, we say the exact opposite, right? I want to pray. It's exactly what Jesus said, the Spirit's willing, I I want to, but I'm so stinking weak, right? My flesh is weak and yet that's the very reason why we must pray, as we're going to see. Because we are weak, we can't handle this. And So prayerlessness doesn't necessarily result from an impure motive, but actually a subtle self-deception. It's so subtle. It's a seductive belief. That actually, I don't have to pray. I don't need to pray. I have the resources. I have the strength to carry out my day, to withstand the schemes of the evil one that are going to come. I have it. Yet, we'll see this morning that though we often give in to this spiritual pride of prayerlessness, Christ is faithful. Christ is faithful, showing us our weakness. Guess what? He shows us our weakness. How does he do it? By letting us fail. He lets them fail. In fact, we'll, we'll see in Luke's account, Jesus tells Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has, has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, think of that picture. Think about some wheat, just shake it. I think of uh, Avengers when Hulk gets a hold of Loki. <laughs> right? And guess what Jesus says? I'm gonna let him. I'm gonna let him. But there's these sweet words. He says, But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. They fail here. We we fail. We stumble in many ways. Yet Christ will ultimately not let us fail. And sometimes the means of waking us up is to let us fail. And we're gonna see that here this morning. Therefore, if trials and temptations are coming, and they are, some of you are in them right now. Trials and temptation are coming, and they don't show any sign of stopping. In fact, they won't until Christ returns. And so if trials and temptations are coming, if sin is crouching at the door desiring to rule you, and the strength to resist does not rely on us, then we must heed Jesus' words here to the disciples and accept his invitation to watch and to pray lest we enter temptation. Well, how do we do that? I want to answer that this morning from this text. How do we keep ourselves from succumbing to temptation? That's the idea. When we do not want to be, enter into temptation, lead us not in temptation, we pray. Don't let us fall into sin. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we see here, we must humbly heed the words of Christ. It begins by taking Christ's words at face value. It's by listening to Christ's words preached this morning, wake up. It's by listening to Christ's word taught. It's by reading Christ's word which actually keeps you from failing. As Jude, stepbrother of Jesus, concludes his letter, he says, It's Christ who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. How is it that Christ keeps you? How is it his powers manifested in it? In his word. He prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, I, I pray, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. That's how he keeps you. We must be bathed into the scriptures if we are going to be kept. And if we do not have his word or do not heed his word, we'll be like a ship lost at sea being tossed to and fro at the mercy of the winds and the waves. And so we must regard Christ's warnings When we come to the word. And that's what he's giving the disciples right here. He is warning them. He is telling them. Temptation is coming. And guess what? You're even going to succumb to it. As Jesus speaks his final words to the disciples before his crucifixion, he admonishes them. And he promises them that their faith, he promises them that they're going to fail, but yet he's going to meet them again. Even though that very night he's going to say, all of you are going to abandon me. All of you. And in essence, we see our own failures and the failures of the disciples who who do not give a proper regard to Christ's warnings. He, He flat out just tells them what's going to happen. It's on their way to the Mount of Olives that Jesus tells them in verse 31, you will all fall away from me. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know that already they're under distress. If the night had already hadn't turned for a a negative downer of an event, and finding out that Jesus had told them at the dinner table that one of you is going to betray me, the shock in all of that has now been topped. Not only are one of you going to betray me, but all of you are going to abandon me. This night is filled with sorrow. It's a sobering reality. Jesus says, not only are you going to do this, but you're going to fulfill Scripture in doing this. This is how sure it is. And he quotes from Zechariah thirteen seven, which Pastor Brian read for us, which reminds us of, of the day in which judgment is going to come upon the shepherd of Israel. And it will be so shocking and so uh, abhorrent and, and the suffering so great that none of the disciples want to be there. The sheep will scatter. That phrase, to fall away, it's, it's used throughout Matthew, and, and it's the idea of being scandalized or offended it's used the first time when, when uh, John the Baptist is in prison, and John the Baptist sends his disciples out to Jesus, and he says, um, are you the Messiah, or are we still waiting on somebody else? Because he's like, I'm in prison. If you're the Messiah, get me out. That's kind of the sense. And basically, Jesus says, blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and the poor receive good news. Tell them, tell them what's going on out here. I imagine the disciples come back. Well, this is what he said. This is what he's doing. Okay, what did he say about me? Nothing. Oh, wait, he did say this. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You could see why you'd be scandalized. Jesus is teaching, right now, my, my will isn't necessarily to, to keep you out of suffering. Does that offend you? Because that's why they're going to abandon him this night. He's going to be weak. Peter's going to draw arms, and Jesus is going to say, put it away. Does that scandalize you? Does that offend you? It's used of the seed on the soil, or the one who at first seems to believe the gospel, receives it with great joy. But when persecutions, trials, and sufferings come, immediately falls away. Is scandalized. How dare you, Jesus, treat me like this? What have you ever done for me? And so they leave. Here Jesus says to his disciples, you're all going to be offended by me tonight. We don't, he doesn't seem to tell us why, but we see why. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to suffer with him, right? They don't want to be identified with him. Oh, no, we're out of here. He says, you're going to be so scandalized by my reproach and my sufferings, you'll forsake me. That's similar for us, isn't it? Oh, our spirit's willing. We don't want to deny Christ. But so oftentimes when the, the battle gets hot, oh, are you one of those Christians who believes this? We feel that reproach. We want to shrink back. Well, maybe I should keep quiet. I don't want to identify with him. We're going to be tempted to be ashamed of Christ and his sufferings. In fact, Paul writes Timothy and he says, Do not be ashamed of me or my chains. Do not be ashamed of me my chains, are our Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to preach the gospel. Jesus tells us that on the basis of him, the world will hate us. I think many of us are trying to, to say, No, Jesus, that doesn't have to work that way. He's like, yeah, it does. If you're going to associate with me, the world will not like you. And so, if we do not heed his warning, we're going to be like those who receive the gospel. And when suffering comes, when trouble comes, we'll be scandalized and we'll fall away. These words are to warn us. And so, we are to receive Christ's admonition here. Not only do we have regard for the warning, listen, we must receive his admonition. Why? Because when the word comes, it's living and active, right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces right into our, our soul, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and that's exactly what Jesus does with Peter here. Peter doesn't have regard for the warning, right? He gets up and he says, Jesus, I don't know about these fools, but I'm going, I'll, never, I'll never deny you. I'll never fall away. I'm not like the rest of the crew. I'm I'm a little bit above them. When we don't receive Christ's admonition, guess what? We're exuding spiritual pride. Isn't that what's happening here? Spiritual pride. And spiritual pride manifests itself in in condescension, self-confidence, and contradiction to God's word. We see all three here as Peter is self-deceived. Look at him. He he, he has the the pride of condescension. He just goes, I don't know about these guys, these fools, but I'm not like them. That's what he's saying, right? They all may fall away. Do you see what he says? They may all fall away, but I won't. Do you see the the pride? Yeah, I know your word gives us lots of admonitions and warnings and tells us why we need to obey, but guess what? You know, I'm I'm cut from a different cloth. I'm not weak like everybody else. I know how to think. I'm smarter. I can can handle it. All these things, that's what Peter's saying. I'm the leader of this bunch. I don't have to do that. I'm the exception. Spiritual condescension. And where's that condescension comes? Well, it's, it's the pride of confidence in himself, right? And this is that, that, that spiritual pride that comes in that you can begin to believe that all the resources, all the strength, all the wisdom to fight sin in the scheme of the devil and your ability to hold fast to Christ all lands on you. And so when you hear the word, you don't receive it because you think, well, that's for somebody else. But yet the scriptures tell us time and time again, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. James reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. For anyone who thinks he is something, Galatians 6, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, Peter is greatly deceived. And so Jesus says, okay. I'm thinking of... uh, Val Kilmer's rolling tombstone. Okay, well, I'm your huckleberry. Guess what? You think you're so, uh, so strong? Well, guess what? Tonight, before morning, before the rooster even crows, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Far from not abandoning, you're actually going to exceed them in your sin because you're so prideful because you don't think you're in danger. And this is what the word does to us. Maybe it's doing it to you right now, it is piercing you. That's what happens, the word, though it is given to all of us when we commune with Christ, he speaks to us, doesn't he? And the Holy Spirit's pressing in each one of our hearts our spiritual pride, yeah, yeah, that's me. And He presses it individually into our hearts. It's unfortunate. Peter doubles down, and it would be unfortunate for any of us to double down today to say, no, 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 no. This still doesn't apply to me. Even after Jesus tells him flat out, this is what you're going to do, we see this contradiction to God's word. No, your word is wrong. You are wrong, Jesus. I am stronger than you think. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And he leads all the disciples in the same folly. And they all said the same. Jesus, you're wrong about me. And that's where we're wrong, right? We're we're deceived. We're spiritually prideful. The word of God is always right. We contradict it. It doesn't contradict us. It knows us better than we know ourselves. But even with all this negative, when the word comes, we remember Christ's promises here. Christ's word doesn't just give us admonitions and warnings. It gives us promises that motivate us and keep us and hold us. And Jesus does the same for the disciples here. Look in look verse 32. There is a seed of hope here. There's a word of hope that all is not lost. He says, after giving them this warning, but after I am raised after resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. Where's the hope there? You're all going to scatter. This is going to be an hour of trial that you have no idea about, but after I'm raised, I'm going to meet you again and gather you to myself. You ultimately won't be lost, and we can remind ourselves that he is our shepherd. He holds us fast. And though we may fail, we can always come back. He's always gathering us back. And ultimately, at the resurrection, we'll meet again. He'll keep us. And so it's the promises of Christ's grace. We see grace here. In Matthew doesn't explore it, but go to John 17, where, where Jesus has prayed for his disciples. I'm leaving the world, but I am leaving them in the world. But I pray, Father, that you keep them as I have kept them. And so we can rest assured that while Satan has asked to sift us like wheat, Christ has prayed that our faith may not fail. And so when we hear the word of God right now, what, what what is it that we should do? Well, we respond. It's always the response. God speaks, the people respond. Well, how do we respond? Here we humbly imitate the prayers of Christ. We've heard his warning, we've heard his admonitions, we've heard his promises. So we respond. We respond by humbly imitating the prayers of Christ. And so Jesus, this all happens, it appears, on their way to the Mount of Olives. And and at the Mount of Olives, they go to a place called Gethsemane, which is a, a garden. And this garden would have been a tree garden with olive trees. It'd be a shaded area, luscious place, place that apparently they had gone night after night, as they had visited Jerusalem, place that Jesus had retreated to pray. So he brings his disciples there. And we see in verse 36 that he said to his disciples, Sit here. While I go over there and pray, this is the first, at least subtle indication, I I want you to pray. And he's obviously talking just to the eight, Judas is gone by now. And then he turns to Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he takes them with him. You may recall that it was Peter, James, and John who went with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It's on that mount that Jesus revealed his divine glory. Well, it's now on the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane that they won't see his glory now. They'll see his grief. They're going to see the other side. They've had the privilege of beholding his glory. Now they're going to behold his grief. And in doing so, he calls us to pray three times. It's implied in verse 36, and then it's stated in 38 and 41. Come, pray with me. Have you ever imagined that? That Jesus is inviting you to pray with him. In this great suffering, in his humanity, he wants his friends with him. He's got his closest friends. Yes, he's got intricate circles. He's got the 12, but he he primarily invests in Peter, James, and John. And he says, I want you to come with me and, and pray. And we get the reason, right? In verse 41, so that we may not enter into temptation. That is, that we will not give in to sin and be overcome with it. Now, while Jesus was without sin, he still prayed that he would not succumb to temptation and not abandon the Father's will. Prayer, on the human side of things, is the means by which Christ remains without sin. And so what do we see here? Well, first of all, As we watch Christ and he invites us to pray, we too confess our weakness. It's in this prayer that we're given insight into Christ's humanity. We're reminded here that, that yes, Jesus is God. We've seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration, but now, and we must not forget that he's, he's a man. He's not a fallen man. He's a sinless man, but he's a man like you and me. And if he wasn't fully a man like you and me, he could not... Be an atonement for you and me. And so he has suffered as a man. Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, which do not conflict, but they aren't the same. And it's in the human nature what we see highlighted here in verses 37 through 46. And I want you to see, and I want you to ponder your Savior as he confesses his weakness his fear and his sorrow. He even tells his friends, Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Why is Jesus' soul so filled with sorrow? Well, he knows his hour is near, right? He knows that he will be betrayed by one of his close friends. He knows that all the rest of his friends are about to abandon him. He's going to have to do this by himself. He knows that he is going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten and he's ultimately going to be crucified and he's going to die. And beyond that, he understands that he is going to drink the cup of God's judgment. He's going to have to drink that cup to the last drop. He's going to bear the sins of the world and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him. And what is happening inwardly is going to manifest itself outwardly in the horrors of the cross. Have you ever felt weariness in your soul? Such a weariness that you despaired of life itself? depressed and don't want to live? Have you felt the pains of sorrow and fear to, that you don't know if I can go on anymore? Jesus did. Jesus did. That's what he's saying here. Your Savior has been there. He's experienced all the frailties of human suffering, sorrow and fear, And just as this confession of his own weakness now leads him into prayer, so as we follow our Savior's footsteps, we confess our weaknesses. Ours are far greater than his on the spiritual side. And so we come to the throne of grace so that we too may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. As Jesus reminds us, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak I'm sure all of us, if we are trusting Christ, have good intentions. I want to heed his word more. I want to pray with him more. But our flesh is weak. And we're reminded time and time again that we just do not have the strength to carry out these intentions, as good as they are. And so we must begin by confessing that to the Lord. I can't do it. Let's begin confessing that we're weak and do not have the strength to endure temptation that is coming on our own. We must confess our weakness that leads us next to confide in the Father. And that's what we see Jesus do. Jesus cries out to his Father. He says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here we see Something remarkable that should shock us in, in a real sense. Jesus' human will wrestles with the divine will, yet without sin. How is that possible? We can have a will that's not sinful, but it's not aligned with the Father's will. We see this wrestling, this tension, this you can almost feel the tension coming and building here. Is there another way, Father? I don't know if I can do this. Is there another way? Jesus confides in his father, wanting to know, is, is there a way the cup can pass? If there is, let it be. And surely his disciples. Maybe they're zoning in and out of sleep. They're within an earshot. And in this moment of weakness, as they watch their Savior crumble before them, fall on his face, he models for them his complaint and lament about the impending suffering that awaits him. He shows us to lament, to cry out. Being overwhelmed with fear and anguish, he vacillates and pleads with his Father, let there be another way. Yet we see he immediately restrains himself and submits himself under the Father's authority. And so when we come to pray, we not only confess our weakness, confide in the Father, but we we come to have our wills conformed. And so Jesus immediately says, nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. We, brothers and sisters, have to learn to pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in chases life, in chases family, in chases church, in society, as it is in heaven. Every sphere that I live, as you live, let your will be done, not mine. I'm too weak. Prayer, while not only about this, is mostly about changing our wills to His. But our wills will never be aligned to God's will if we are prayerless. It will never happen. Jesus comes out, and that's what He finds His disciples doing. They're they're sleeping, right? That while they should be praying, they're sleeping. Many of us are sleepy Christians. Sleepy. And he says, this is humbling, isn't it? Could you not watch with me one hour? Some of us can't pray for 30 seconds. Could you not pray with me for an hour? Now, maybe this is just a minute, a short period of time. It, it, but either way, it's humbling, isn't it? do you have time any, any time to pray with me Jesus returns and I want you to see the progress in Jesus as his will's conforming verse 42 again for the second time he went and prayed but we don't see him asking anymore now it's more conforming my father if this cannot pass unless I drink it your will be done now he's praying your will be done let this happen Let this suffering come, because you're going to accomplish your purposes through it. And so it is true for us. No longer prays for the cup to pass. He says, I know. It's not. So your will be done. And while Christ, as we see him being strengthened by the Father's will, the disciples are weighed down by the flesh, aren't they? Christ is being strengthened in prayer. The disciples are becoming heavy with their burdens. We see in verse 43, He came out again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. It Seems as if he doesn't even bother this time. And so he goes now for a third time, saying the same words again. Your will be done. Your will be done. Your will be done. Seeing Jesus pray three times reminds me of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He was being afflicted, he was experiencing suffering. He had false teachers who were lying about him and and coming in and destroying his ministry. He says, A messenger of Satan has come to, to buffet me, to beat me. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times, let this suffering end. But what did he learn? My grace is sufficient for you, for my my power is complete in your weakness. And so Paul comes out and he says, I will all the more boast in my weaknesses, for when I am weak, he's strong. And that's exactly what we see happen here. We come out of prayer and we collect our strength. And so Jesus comes out in verse 45 and he came to them and he says, sleep and take your rest later. Oh, he's not falling on his face and weary and sorrowful. No, he says, rise, let us be going. Do you see it? He comes out like a lion now. He's convinced of the will of God and he knows he's walking in it, though he will die. After these three sessions, he comes out emboldened to move forward while his disciples are fast asleep. Before Jesus prayed, what did we see? Weakness, sorrow, and fear. After he prays, he rises on his feet in strength and confidence. These closing verses show us that Jesus is now ready for the hour that's at hand. He's ready. Not in a strength of his own, but he's in full dependence upon the Father because he's spent with the Father. He's renewed confidence that God's will will be done and he can face the cross which lies ahead. As as the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. He's convinced. Victory's on the other side. The disciples, on the other hand, very different story, isn't it? They don't pray. So now the hour of trial comes upon them. That's what he says. Rise, my betrayer is at hand. It's too late. They're like, the, they're like the, the virgins who weren't ready. They woke up and, whoa, whoa, the bridegroom's here. We're not prepared. We don't have any oil. no, no. Yeah, they scatter. They weren't ready for the fight. They were sleepy so they didn't pray, and so they fall. Everything that Jesus told them would happen, happens. But here's the good news, and we'll see this as we continue in Matthew. When we're faithless, guess what? Christ remains faithful, right? Christ remains faithful. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that you have prayed for us, that our faith may not fail. And thank you that you even let us go our own way for a season, so that we can see that our strength does not rely, reside in us, but out of your grace. You convict us, and you draw us back, and you say, now you can be strengthened, and we can watch and pray, and we can be useful to you, and we can be on guard and not fall into the schemes of the devil. Lord, I pray for us that we would be a people all the more who heeds your words and imitates your prayers. Would you do that in us?